The AI Tipping Point podcast is brought to you by Worldwide Technology, NVIDIA, and NetApp, and produced by Government Executive Media Group Studio 2G. Cloud data and other tools have helped to set the stage for artificial intelligence. With 5G, Edge, and other tech on the horizon, 2020 is set to be the biggest year yet for AI. In order to pave the way forward and fully embrace secure, revolutionary AI, government and IT leaders will need to lean on trusted partners and tools. Partners like Worldwide Technology, NVIDIA, and NetApp are here to help, offering guidance, support, and secure solutions for every part of your AI journey. Reach out today to learn more about how they can help your agency realize the full benefits of AI. Welcome to the AI Tipping Point, a podcast from Government Executive Media Group's Studio 2G in collaboration with NVIDIA, NetApp, and WWT that aims to answer the question, if 2019 was the tipping point for AI, then what's ahead? I'm your host, Tim Hartman, the CEO of Government Executive Media Group. Throughout this series, we've been delving into all the practical aspects of AI, from data management to implementation to acceleration, looking to touch on all the ways that government agencies can partner with private sector leaders to make AI a success. Today, as a finale to the series, we'll mine the expertise from industry experts to paint a big picture of government AI now and in the future. In particular, we'll be digging into the acceleration in government adoption. Large-scale initiatives are currently being adopted throughout government, and we'll get into why, as well as how, government is turning to big transformational projects as AI matures. Finally, we'll drill into what we can expect from the next stage of AI development and how government leaders can prepare, budget, and invest effectively to remain competitive and solve looming challenges. Our guests today are Anthony Robbins, the Vice President of Federal at NVIDIA, Kirk Kern, Chief Technology Officer at NetApp, and Brian Thomas, Senior Vice President of Public Sector at Worldwide Technology. Thank you all for joining me today. Tim, thanks for having us. Great to be here, Tim. Brian, let's start with you. AI has quickly become an essential tool for government in terms of fulfilling their current missions. Can you speak to the acceleration of AI that you're currently seeing in the government market and how it's working to fulfill the mission? Yeah, Tim, thanks for the opportunity. One to be here and to answer that question this most interesting time. Um, worldwide technology has been diving after how to address so many different problems from an infrastructure perspective for the last 30 years. And I think today, we have an unbelievable opportunity with the partners here, you know, in NVIDIA and NetApp to tackle really what I think four critical areas are. Number one, you know, the platform for education is in where AI can play into providing real workloads to ensure that we've got the right workforce um, with the right backgrounds uh, focused in the right areas of our government customer. And we're seeing a massive translation of of opportunity for this, um, we'll call it human capital opportunity, and uh, for that AI to play a big part as the platform that really takes large computation and math equations with, obviously, with you know GPUs at the forefront doing these you know fast computations of how to fix this human capital issue we have with AI. Um, the second one, and I think we all know that in in government we have lots of large platforms machines, facilities, aircraft, and this opportunity to do real predictive facilities and real predictive maintenance based on an AI platform 
will save the, the government customer billions and billions of dollars over a period of time. And we have many different commercial organizations that we're servicing at Worldwide that are doing that work today. And they've started it you know, years ago in you know, 2014 and 2015 around predictive maintenance. And so to take those, those equations of those uh, computations and provide that same data analytics and provide real dollars and savings to our federal government is an awesome opportunity for AI. Um, you know, the other things that, you know, top of mind around geospatial, you know, how do we protect our nation? How do we, you know, serve our, our customers? And uh, how do we service our, our, our healthcare initiatives that are right in front of us, understanding that? Um, edge computing, you know, with the public safety initiatives that are in forefront right now and in, in getting that, you know, that GPU technology, that speed of process on the edge. Uh, is is a great example. And then the last one, and I think probably the most pressing with the circumstances that we're in today is accelerating, you know, the healthcare initiatives and really driving um, not just awareness of, you know, the health crisis that we're in, but really addressing a cure and a fix and uh, the ability for AI to play a very strong role in accelerating healthcare. So Anthony, turning to you, I mean, the, those examples that Brian just shared are, are great because those are, those are not small initiatives. Uh, those are pretty transformational uh, things that government's trying to do. And can you speak to why government leaders should continue to pursue and scale up their adoption of AI with a sense of urgency? We've mentioned many times in this program that artificial intelligence is the largest technology transformation that the federal government um, has ever undertaken uh, or will likely ever undertake and certainly in our lifetimes. And it's that way for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, one, of, one of which is the computing capacity for things like GPUs combined with the amount of the vast amount of data that the government has gives the government a, an opportunity to apply artificial intelligence and in, in building out and training of neural networks to address problems in every single agency. There is hardly a use case today where artificial intelligence and machine learning can't be applied. There is hardly a single use case. And so, so we, we're dealing with a really large technology transformation inside of a really large market and and central to making progress here is having uh, vast amounts of data and the government has that so there's four things that we always advise that the government figure out how to address to make this thing go bigger and faster and and all successful programs in government have some version of these four things in place one is a person in charge that could be the cio a cdo a project manager or somebody that's skilled um in in leading change and transformation but so somebody has to be in charge there has to be funding you see a whole bunch of money being put in research and development for non-department of defense. You see the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center stood up, DARPA and AI Next, on and on and on. You see plenty of evidence that funding is being applied, but funding should be applied in every single agency, bar none. Um, and then alignment. We always encourage uh, our customers to take careful consideration of use cases that they could begin working on. You know, Suzette Kent says a lot just get started 
with respect to AI, General Shanahan speaks openly about uh, the year 2020 is going to be the year of AI in DoD. So if we take important messages from those leaders, you know, we'll get alignment and we'll pick use cases, uh, which we can apply AI to to serve citizens or to serve our Department of Defense and and pick the right ones and then stay committed to those. And then finally, Tim, what's really important on this one is change and transformation. You know, we've talked a couple of times that the technology is actually mature um, from from a lot of different aspects, you know, namely that it's been proven in a whole bunch of use cases by companies and industries all around the globe. And and so the change and transformation effort that is required to make this real in government uh, could be said to be harder than actually the the state of the technology that we have today. Right. The technology is there, but the change and transformation is where we have government leaders who are interested in the technology, you know, really challenged to to get it off the ground, maybe. But what are some more examples that you're seeing? I mean, as NVIDIA, I'm sure you see tons of examples of use cases where government's really trying to apply this. In addition to some of the ones you mentioned, where are other places where you're seeing this really take off? Well, uh, it, you know, it's it's limitless, you know, frankly, because it's everywhere. I mean, the way in which we interact with artificial intelligence systems in our everyday life would probably shock a lot of us. But, you know, so, for example, in government, there's a really there's a really light touch, easy way to enter into artificial intelligence, like robotic process automation, for example. It doesn't require big process changes, doesn't require big infrastructure. And there's some, you know, really interesting companies and tools there that allow the government to get started pretty quickly around robotic process automation. And across the federal government, in particular on the civilian agency side, there's really neat work going on. There's an RPA community of interest, and I've seen the IRS do some really good work in this area. Um, Across the Department of Defense, in fact, federal government as a whole, the area of robotics. Um, there's amazing work occurring in robotics, both inside the federal government and commercial industries. And there's uh, plenty more opportunities in the, in the world of autonomous systems. Um, you know, if, you, if you've read recently some of the work that Will Roper and the Air Force are doing with respect to autonomy, as is the Navy, and of course, uh, the Army, and you know, likewise, civilian agencies. So the autonomous systems. Uh, no, nobody in the federal market believes that tomorrow's cyber challenge um, will will be solved if we don't figure out how to bring into that artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, General Nakasone, before he was even confirmed at Cybercom, made the statement to that effect. Uh, Vice Admiral Nancy Norton at DISA often says the same thing. And of course, that Jake is focused on it, as is Dana Deasy, the CIO uh, of the Department of Defense. So cyber is another area. And then finally, and Brian mentioned this earlier, platform sustainment. Um, Arguably, the number one financial challenge for the Department of Defense in the future and there's no way that that we don't go solve to the, the business challenge of platform sustainment without advancing data analytics, uh, AI and machine learning as it relates to you know, maintaining the, the, the platforms that the Department of Defense has around the world. Those are a few areas. Yeah, no, and those are all interesting areas. Yeah, I mean, autonomy is definitely 
an emerging area that, that we already know has had a tremendous impact on the Air Force and, and yes, the Navy's it's one of their top priorities right now. So as we see artificial intelligence help those systems, you know, there, there's huge applications there. Um, in addition to cyber platform sustainment, the other things we've talked about. So, um, Kirk, you have an enormous amount of experience with emerging technology. You worked at Penn State Applied Research Labs doing high performance, you know, supercomputing uh, with DARPA. What insights can you offer in terms of how leaders can work to implement new technologies effectively? Well, in all those examples, it was largely about technology. At um, Applied Research Lab, we were building high-powered lasers for doing laser materials processing, while at the same time using that same technology against uh, Star Wars defense initiatives at Naval Research Laboratory. We developed a high-performance switching program that ultimately launched the entire ATM industry. And then at DARPA, we worked on programs that drove supercomputers to higher levels of performance so that we could create simulations on the next generation of tech so that we could advance in that space as as well. Um, With AI, though, I think it's interesting. Um, Looking more broadly, it requires a heavy dose of people, process, and technology that have to work together because AI is that powerful and that transformational. So with respect to tech, it really isn't new. Some of the same algorithms and models have been around for almost 40 years or are being used today. Uh, what it lacked, however, was a commercial industry to stand up behind it to produce cost-effective systems and software that had a strong enough uh, business to maintain that investment uh, from a commercial perspective. And then today we have GPUs and software that you know, have a growing adoption curve in commercial industry. And, you know, it's driving the open source developer community to write software to that. And we're starting to see a lot of private sector companies are quickly writing to more vertical specific software. And so I think in terms of of the technology curve with AI, you know, it's well underway. If we look at people, you know, I think we can look at it as two ways of deploying the technology. One is as an augmentative capability. The, the other one is a direct replacement. Let's kind of talk about with, you know, with augmentation, if I can give you something that makes you more effective, you're going to use it. If, however, if I give you something that replaces what you're doing, the adoption will, will not likely occur. All right. And so in the first scenario, I think the value prop is clear. So for workloads, you know, the, the AI will advance rapidly and rapidly in that space. In the second, however, what I think we could do some work to develop new services or capabilities and then develop domain experts in those new services that can accelerate or produce derived products from the AI service. And so think about like, maybe it's an interpretation service of what the model predicted versus actually developing the prediction. And then finally around process, you know, th- that's a lot harder. Um, in, in all those prior programs that, that I had uh, talked about, you know, the government and the DOD used maturity models or technology readiness levels to model the technology uh, but that was that's, has largely given way to basically aligning and tracking what industry is using. You know, the government would develop the technology it needed to be superior. And back in the early days, and let's just say 90s, um, you know, those programs that you mentioned would shepherd or develop the technology for key for a set of key areas with the express focus of solving a particular problem that the government faced. Um, because the government invested early, it understood the technology and the degree of readiness at that point. And then when it was mature, it could deploy it directly or wait for industry to build a commercially available solution. 
All right. And so I had mentioned you know, earlier about some of these public-private partnership programs. I think that's where we can make some dramatic uh, strides around process. And I think as An Anthony mentioned, you know, it's a national challenge. And so maybe we look towards the establishment of a national office for AI or something uh, you know, at, at a very high level to be effective here. Yeah. And, and in reference to the cybersecurity initiatives that Anthony had mentioned, I think that's an opportunity um, in the cybersecurity area we could, where we could create a national level program to protect all U.S. citizens against cyber attack or cyber crime. Today, we have a disconnected set of systems that work at different layers of the networking stacks, and that typically protects different resources on the network. Um, for instance, banks protect their transactions with PCI DSS requirements today. If we look at government agencies like the IRS and Social Security, they have encryption protection with e-filing systems, but we still see a ramp in Social Security fraud, and so that's certainly a growing concern. Conceptually, a national service would be widespread and hard-hitting because it would cross multiple agency platforms to detect, protect, identify, and generate the evidence to prosecute attackers, right? So think of a, a, a cyber fingerprint, for instance, and that would involve cross-agency experts to include technologists, networking uh, staff, law enforcement, and even justice. Uh, you know, the current system today of protection is that prosecution is too fragmented and cyber criminals typically operate with little opposition or fear that they're going to be caught and even less concern about being brought to justice. And so I think this is one example where we could establish a national level uh, service or capability with new tools and new use of these tools. And then as, as, as we get down into the program level and you have program managers or, or agency leaders, you know, as AI adoption picks up speed, what, what can they do to pivot effectively, you know, given what they, they currently have? You know, if the technology is there, what advice do you give them in terms of the other two steps of it? Well, yeah, that, that, that's a hard one to, to accomplish, right? The, the, the people one, um, you, you almost have to engage them early, bring them in as part of the evaluation process. And so it's not a typical acquisition where you go out and describe a set of capabilities, bring in uh, the, the tech and, and then deploy it, right? So you, 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 have, you have to get early stewardship and early buy-in from, from the people perspective. And, and then with the process, right, um, that, that's a harder one. I, I don't know how to prescribe, you know, how the government changes, how they operate. And so that, that, that's one that I think will occur over time as the technology matures, they'll have to catch up in order to address and adopt the technology. Maybe there's some, some of the other panelists like Anthony may, might have some, some suggestions, but, but that one's, uh, that, that one's going to be have to address through, I think, uh, you know, multiple iterations. Yeah, Anthony and Brian, I want to bring you guys into that question is, as the technology is there and, you know, it's this, it's this powerful technology, when you're talking to government leaders about the, the applications of it and how to adopt it, you know, what are some of the pieces of advice you give them in terms of getting the program, you know, to the ground, you know, to start running? You know, Tim, as we, we looked at some of the early adopters uh, for our organization was really the energy sector. Um, primarily uh, mining, oil and gas. Uh, they're part of the, a lot of the supercomputing centers, which which led them to this this journey probably faster than others. It was an iterative process, and our plan is was was always to to get to what Anthony spoke to those champions in the business or really in in government the mission side of the objectives. 
And through ideation and, you know, gamification allowed us to get to the heart of, you know, a um, collaboration experience across their organization to get buy-in at, you know, the senior level leader, but really have an, an understanding that this would not replace um, individuals' jobs, but empower them to work on, you know, more important uh, and higher valued parts of their job. And, and if that equates to, you know, our, you know, RPA, as an example, um, you know, more effective and efficient decision making abilities, I think we can all agree that there's things inside of our jobs that we do that aren't the most effective and efficient things. You know, quite frankly, you know, AI in the process of everybody understanding the empowerment of this technology and what it can do for you will allow for people to spend more time doing things that they really want to do in their job and potentially remove and eliminate um, these processes that, you know, quite frankly, a lot of us don't, don't want to do anyway. So more of an empowerment and you know, an education than an elimination. And I think we all know, take the VA for an example, we've got you know, thousands and thousands of jobs that they can't fill. So you know, giving them an opportunity to empower, uh, to, to deploy capabilities uh, on a, an absolute national treasure such as our veterans and in making sure that we're servicing them the right way, I think we can all agree that is a is a great use of, of technology to empower um, a real core mission objective. Anthony, what are you seeing when when you talk to the leaders and they're trying to to fuel this adoption? What what's some of the advice or questions that come up? Well, there's a there's a couple of things. You know, it's actually pretty impressive if you if you step back and take a look at the whole landscape across the federal government with respect to AI. And because the Department of Defense, I believe it's on record, has like having been begun work on artificial intelligence back to like 1957. And a couple of years ago, uh, there was a really good um, podcast that was done that referenced the DOD leader who, who had said that there was 600 AI projects underway across the Department of Defense. And that was before the Jake was stood up. And that was before the executive order was signed. It, um, and I, I think it was right around the same time that DARPA stood up AI Next. So, you, you know, it, it wouldn't be too hard to imagine that there could be a thousand pilot AI pilots going on across the federal government. Um, so, so this thing is well underway. The, the challenge is we got to go from pilots to operations. We got, we got to go from pilots to serving citizens and pilots to DOD transformation. That's the step that we have to make. And, and to make that, really requires a skilled leader in the area of transformation in government because you can take a world-class transformation leader in a commercial space and put them in government. It doesn't always map. So we, we have to have really skilled people in the area of change and transformation in middle management-like positions because that's where change occurs. They have to be funded and, and, and in every successful case of getting AI into operations, they will have mastered their data, as Kirk mentioned earlier, as, as, as you heard from Brian. Because central to this work is the data, the access to it, labeled data, enough of it, and the like. So th those are some of the things that get us to, go, to start going faster. 
Yeah, and I, I have to jump on that one since uh, you brought up the data, Anthony. Right, every agency has vast amounts of data, and everyone in those agencies would like to generate, you know, better information from it or better intelligence from it. You know, in some cases, uh, that data is controlled by policy, or in some cases, it has security restrictions on how it can be used. And so, part back to the process, you know, some of the things we can do is open up access to that data. Uh, and the federal government has been growing in that trend, right? They've been publishing a lot of information outside of the uh, the government repositories now, where you know general citizens can can access these vast data sets. But what what they need to do is set up a direction to make that that secure access and define legal use for that information, right? And so that would be a good investment on the government's part is to is to understand you know establish some criteria around that. And then secondly, decide whether they're going to use, you know, this, you know, this augmented capability or develop these net new services, right? And so I've seen some government AI workloads that are really better solved than, you know, by analytics rather than trying to apply AI to it because they've already got a, you know, big data platform in place. And so it's just a matter of using your data analysts to go after the information or answer the question that, that they're looking for. But in other cases, in the net new services that the government could produce, you know, they could be quite dramatic in, in the response or the capability that they, that they build out. And so, you know, I, I think, but once again, back to process, I think they have a good plan around transition, right? Migrating from that sort of traditional process that they had around IT and how they manage IT in their existing environments to the now this environment where you have this you know autonomous system that could potentially make decisions on the fly. And so it's going to be extremely disruptive to you know any sort of process where you have a you know an in-situ person in the loop or man in the loop. And so uh, the, the, I think it'll be interesting as we move forward. Yeah, and then Tim, I would just finally just add it. There's there's a couple of really good documents that are that are out there on kind of like this topic. One was published by the Center for New American Security and under the title uh, "The American AI Century: A Blueprint for Action." So there's some some really heady points in there. I think the, the forward on that one was from. Uh, former Deputy Secretary of Defense Bob Work, and, and interestingly, in there, he, they call on the federal government to invest twenty-five billion a year. So, funding is certainly central, as is data in there. And then, more recently, the National Security Commission for Artificial Intelligence published their first quarter recommendations, and it made you know context to tools and data and process and funding and the like. So, just there's some really good information that can help. Uh, our industry and our government kind of aligned to some, you know, really heady thinking on this topic, hopefully uh, all enabling us to go faster. Yeah. Funding and investment are crucial to get these programs off the ground. As you, as you mentioned, Anthony, how can agencies budget appropriately and what can they do to be sure that they'll see results from their investments in AI? So funding is really important. Um, you know, but over time I've often said, you know, it's not like the government uh, doesn't spend a lot of money already. Like, what, what is the Department of Defense budget? Seven hundred and twenty billion dollars, you know, and uh, and and they spend, you know, forty four billion dollars a year on IT, you know, as it is today, um, you know, and and the the document I referenced earlier by the Center for New American Security, you know, they call on the federal government to invest twenty five billion a year. And, and as it's described, you go, well, that it actually is not, you know, it's not a, a very big investment in terms of percentage of, of spend that exists. So, 
So that's kind of hoping for funding to come tomorrow. And, and, I, and a lot of people are working on that. But as far as what people can do today, it, like th- there's plenty of money to, I, I, I still like what Suzette Ken says, and it's just, just get started. So generally speaking, all agencies and across the Department of Defense, they have plenty of money to get, to get started with um, AI projects. There's uh, some really important work that has to happen relative to their data strategy. And I actually, I, I believe that the data strategy and infrastructure, you know, are going to be two areas where they're going to have to make investments. The Department of Energy recently released an announcement where they intend to, I, mean, I think it was a, like a $30 million award where they're going to try to get um, help for their data strategy. And so that's, that's $30 million to work, you know, so, it, but it demonstrates a priority. And, and frankly, you know, every agency and across the entire Department of Defense, they should be investing, you know, similar, if not more, um, you know, relative to data. And investment's going to have to occur on infrastructure. And that's whether you're doing edge work, like Brian mentioned earlier, or, or data center on-prem work, which I think Kirk has mentioned, or whether you're going into the cloud. Infrastructure modernization has to happen. Uh, investment in your data must occur. And, and, then, and then if we can get those things right, I think we can make really rapid progress. From automating tedious tasks to bolstering decision-making, AI ushers in huge changes for the workforce. Managing these changes starts at the top. So how can organizations work to orient the C-suite to effectively usher in and manage AI? So I, I agree with both uh, the points, and, and I would just further the, the first step that they made, and, and they and they were going down the initiative. And I believe it was by June this summer that each organization needed to assign and and or hire uh, a chief data officer. And so in the commercial organizations, usually you have like a data officer and you have a digital uh, because they have a, a digital strategy. They don't just have a, a data strategy; but they have a digital strategy, and that. And that is likely because of the the type of work they're doing in, in retail and you know wholesale and finance and so on and so forth. Well, the first step that I think the government needed to take was the one they did. They need to assign someone to own the opportunity. When we often, Anthony and myself and Kurt would go see customers, we talk about the data strategy that they had in an organization trying to tackle the most critical mission objectives that they had. No one really owned the problem, or I would say the opportunity. And now someone is going to be assigned to say, I am responsible for taking this big data opportunity that we have, understanding our data. We've created this data lake. Now we're going to do something with that. I believe inside of that, there are pearls of wisdom that will come out that will really be AI initiatives. They will be data studies uh, that will then turn into you know, uh, machine learning will eventually turn into opportunities for AI. So I don't, I don't think anybody in the past few years has really owned it. I think you've had some, some very smart individuals inside of uh, government agencies that took it on as call it side projects and initiatives inside of their program, but no one really had adopted the journey. And without that, you can't create clear lines of funding. Can't create a a strategy that maps to your, you know, in the army, the the chief of the army, their initiatives or the CIO of the VA or the CTO of these organizations, the different leaders have to address the strategies and then align that that data strategy to that. And through those workloads will come, you know, more opportunities for such things as AI to to help with that. So I think they're on their way. And to Anthony's point, you know, the 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 funding is there. 
It's prioritizing the dollars and ensuring that we're not just continuing to do the same thing that we've done over the past 10, 15 years. So Anthony, back to you. When, when you look at these transformational opportunities and you've got a leader who is, is looking to apply artificial intelligence as a solution, who else needs to be at the table? We've talked a little bit about chief data officers and technologists, but who has to be there to make sure that you can put a, a truly impactful AI program together and get it off the ground? Well, I think the most important group the, the most important group to change and transformation in the federal government are the middle managers. And, and so usually in any agency or any uh, branch of service, there's middle managers that usually own the existing programs or own the funding or are accountable for mission outcomes and or uh, citizen services. And so I, I'm a big believer is you, you got to get to the people that own responsibility for that. And, you know, in some cases that, you know, that, that, that easily could be the CIO and the CDO and, and other executives. But, but in many cases, it just sits right there in, in middle managers. I, I often say with, with any change of administration, right? Well, what is there? 6,000, 6,500, maybe, you know, executive positions that, that leave government and then get, get filled. So, you know, so like the leadership changes, frankly, fairly often in, in government. Uh, general officers, of course, have, you know, consistent rotations. And, you know, but, but the, the stability in any organization, is, it's, you know, usually those middle managers who spend their career in government. And, and, it's, for, and it's at that level where real change and transformation needs to occur. And it's, and so if we in industry are world-class at working with middle managers on this greatest technology transformation that, that the world has ever known, um, then I think we'll, we'll do what we're responsible for doing. And that is, you know, consulting and assisting so that, that they could change and make, you know, less mistakes, but change and go faster. Um, and and pick wise pilots and proof of concepts and the like. But, but the middle managers is where the magic will occur in this one. We're in an interesting moment in history with COVID-19, and we're seeing both government and industry make use of AI to help manage the crisis. All of your companies, NetApp, NVIDIA, and Worldwide Technologies are contributing in different ways. Can you speak to some highlights in terms of solutions you're seeing come to play around COVID-19? Yeah, what we're what we're seeing initially is, you know, I mean, there's the the obvious things that everybody wants, you know, technology to do is is to to solve the ultimate uh, end game here, which is a cure, right? And and treatment, I guess, treatment and then cure and faster testing. So it's kind of those those preemptive strikes between us figuring that out and um, AI and specifically GPUs, you know, at the speed and rate of they can, you know look at these equations and look at these analytics and statistics will allow for research and development at, you know, um, education centers, at healthcare research facilities, at energy facilities to make really fast decisions. Those decisions could allow for the speed of patient care services 
uh, drug research and ultimate cure to, to come to a, a much faster um, transformation in a safe way than we've ever seen before. Uh, that's the long term. I think short term, some of the things that we're already seeing um, is around, you know, if you think about, you know, the, the opportunity um, with uh, geospatial and our ability to understand hotspots, uh, places that have, you know, mass amounts of, you know, infected, infected individuals, uh, and continuing to communicate that, you know, safely uh, with under the, the laws of the government to communicate that out to people to be able to make better decisions on where they can move, um, how they can move, and what's the safest way to continue to go back to what normal life looks like. Um, and that, that, you know, those, those analytics and that, you know, that data had already existed for, I'd say, different reasons. And now we need to apply the, those statistics um, to keep our citizens safe and secure as we get to the ultimate goal of you know, better screening, better testing, um, you know, and then ultimately a cure. Kirk, that sounds like a lot of data and data management as, as we think about all of the geospatial data. We've seen a ton of mapping going on in this and we've got a ton of health data that's out there. You know, what, what's your take on, on what's happening right now in that space? Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I kind of see this developing um, in, in sort of uh, two deployment modalities. As Anthony had mentioned, you know, the middle managers have the, the you know, operational programs today. And so we're seeing AI used as an augmentative approach, right? Now, arguably, this isn't, you know, it isn't new, it's, but it's creating additional capabilities on top of existing programs where, you know, they were using the geospatial maps for, you know, traffic control and, 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 other, and other use cases. Now they're using that to track the, um, you know, the progression of the virus. And so, you know, there's, there's some practical examples of what we could use from, you know, the mission space of intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance for tracking vehicles to applying that, that same technology for preventing the spread of the COVID virus, right? And so, you know, I, I think it's, um, you know, it's interesting that you can take an adjacent workload and, and then apply that to this, this next-gen technology. And there's probably some other things that we're doing around, you know, geospatial work for feature de detection and identification, where that will help create maps and routes for, for potentially, um, you know, identifying how to deliver, you know, cures to the affected areas. And so there's a whole host of opportunities around, you know, take, taking what we've done in, you know, the, uh, the geospatial and the ISR space and then applying that to the, to the COVID crisis. Anthony, what are you seeing from, from your perch at NVIDIA? You interact with a lot of government leaders. What, what do you see in the COVID response and the opportunities for AI? Well, I think there's a lot of things that are underway. Um, of course, the High Performance Computing Consortium that was stood up under Michael Kratzios and Lynn Parker um, brought together world-class companies to, you know, figure out how to combine high-performance computing assets to do some work uh, on the COVID-19. And so, and they started off with, you know, a dozen projects and, and they're now you know, I think north of 50 projects where they're trying to bring high performance computing resources um, from around the globe and for sure across the U.S. to, to go work on this challenge. Uh, of course, the, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center has announced uh, some work that they're doing under General Shanahan where they're working, trying to work on predictive um, analytics around supply chain. And, and you know, that work is 
is underway. And then there's a, there's a whole bunch of other things um, as well. It, it, you know, in part, the, the funding is, you know, I think the, the plan B aspect of the $2 trillion stimulus funding was going to go to uh, uh, healthcare, uh, state and local and federal agencies. So, and, and then there, there's a specific call out for um, the work that people would like to do with respect to data analytics and artificial intelligence. I think if you, if you step back, you know, just look at the, the, the picture from a distance, you know, what's, what's really interesting is uh, how dominant uh, artificial intelligence is in the discussion of, you know, this healthcare crisis, right? And, you know, if, if, if the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic occurred two years ago, you know, would we be talking about artificial intelligence as prominently as we are today? And probably not. So, you know, I think just, just the conversation, the fact that artificial intelligence and machine learning and data analytics and the like is such an important part of the conversation is also an expression of how far artificial intelligence has come with respect to a transformative technology for all use cases. That's a really good segue into, into my, my final question that I had for you guys. It's, it's important that right now agencies are addressing multiple challenges at the same time. They've got to manage the shift to telework, manage the pandemic. They've got to maintain their uh, services to citizens, um, make sure that their messaging is on point. So now might be a time when side projects fall by the wayside. So why is it important to maintain urgency around artificial intelligence in all of this? Anthony, do you want to start us off? Well, for a whole bunch of reasons, and, and to repeat myself, it's, you know, we are facing the largest technology transformation in, in the history of the federal government. And the, the progress that the world will make or is making on artificial intelligence isn't slowing down because of the, the COVID-19 uh, global pandemic. It's, it's not so if, if, if anything, you can imagine that, that there, that this would speed up. And so important inside of all the organizations is, you know, the ownership, you know, and, and the beauty about the federal government is, you know, there's, there's budget here for this stuff. So as long as we have ownership, as we keep our focus, um, you know, priorities do shift, right? So that's, but that's normal in, in government. So we'll, we'll face some priorities shifting. But, you know, as I said earlier, artificial intelligence is going to touch every single agency with no exception. Artificial intelligence is set to touch all the important use cases. And the technology has matured so rapidly. Uh, and then as we align funding, so we're, we're close to pulling this stuff together. And I, but I think we in industry, you know, have to do a really good job participating in the, the, the greatest of change and transformation efforts that the government's going to take on. And if we do, if we do a good job in industry, we'll help the government go faster. So I just think we need to be as good as we've ever been in serving this marketplace. Yeah. Kirk, why do you think that we, we need to keep our sense of urgency around this? Well, uh, several things are at play here. Um, you know, I, I think we understand 
fundamentally uh, the, the challenges that, that we face today, uh, specifically around COVID. Um, but if, you, if we look at a, at a national level, there are other countries that are out using AI technology quite effectively and arguably are going uh, to compete for us, uh, will compete in um, that technology space and, and potentially develop uh, solutions that are superior to ours. Case in point with COVID, um, South Korea started early with AI services around chatbot support for, you know, uh, logging cases and calls. They then uh, rapidly moved to testing. And from that testing, then they placed all that information into a national database. We're able to use uh, individuals that were identified as testing positive for the virus, then do smart quarantining based on the the individuals that they may have touched. And the way they did that was through, you know, the geolocation. Of, of cell phones, right? And so that, that created an incredible capability for them to contain and control that virus and ultimately flatten their curve unbelievably. Uh, if we pull back into the United States now, you know, that kind of crosses through multiple domains where, uh, you know, cell phone history and location information is held in a separate repository or asset. And arguably, uh, individuals in the United States don't want that information used. Uh, we step back into the, you know, the data releasability constructs around that, you know, what you know, South Korea was able to do um, because of the way they were organized was to, you know, take all that information, aggregate it together, and then create a, a, an incredible capability. We need to be able to figure out ways where we can build these data lakes, access that information securely, um, provide the next generation services that our citizens need, and then fundamentally take that and then drive us to a superior position, both in terms of, you know, economic, health, and and even the Department of Defense. Yeah, in many ways, the crisis is an opportunity to accelerate it, that if you don't harness it, you, you could miss it as well. So, yes. Brian, what are you seeing in terms of acceleration or, or places where we need to maintain our focus and urgency? Yeah, great, great points by both panelists. Um, you know, this is an opportunity. It's an unfortunate situation, for sure. I mean, a crisis, the amount of people that have been affected, the um, the unemployment rate is, is staggering, um, but we, we should learn from this opportunity, right? We should take it as a, as a situation with all the dollars, the trillions of dollars that's being spent and ensure that we, one, are looking across the aisle to what commercial organizations are doing to prepare themselves to operate in this environment for the foreseeable future, to prepare them to be in a remote uh, situation, to, to better uh, address their enterprise um, their data strategy, and ultimately, you know, focus on what is making those organizations effective in this time, and in their words, profitable, in our world, in public service, effective. And I think that with the dollars in place, the technology that is here today, um, we can address this together with, you know, Anthony's point around Suzette's comment around, let's get started, but let's not put a Band-Aid on the situation and put interim steps in place. Let's address the enterprise and use this as that opportunity to do so, knowing that we could be operating in this environment for for a little while now. Um, And it will only make our nation and us as individuals stronger to address these national crises and these global crises in our future. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap. Anthony, Kirk, and Brian, I want to thank you all for joining us today and, and having a great conversation on on the opportunity with artificial intelligence. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate the invite. Great time. Tim, thanks for having us. I'd also like to thank our listeners on this episode of the AI Tipping Point. 
The AI Tipping Point is a production of Government Executive Media Group's Studio 2G in collaboration with NVIDIA, NetApp, and WWT. If you liked this episode, subscribe on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or at govexec.com slash podcasts. Thank you for listening to the AI Tipping Point podcast, brought to you by Worldwide Technology, NVIDIA, and NetApp. With so much potential on the horizon for AI, let 2020 be your year to kick off or pump up deployment. Reach out today to learn more about how Worldwide Technology, NVIDIA, and NetApp can help your agency reach its full potential with AI.